Welcome to the Sanity Pod, honest human stories from the front lines of startup life. Our mission is to normalize the ups and downs of creating something from nothing, and the challenges common to every leader, such that we might all feel a little less alone in the journey. In our first season, we are focusing on stories and tactical advice from leaders guiding organizations through the coronavirus crisis. Welcome. We are so glad you're here. Mornings, let's try. All right. It looks like we're both recording, so we'll make it work. How are you with your mic? Are you okay? I think I'm okay. How's it sounding? Yeah, you sound great. Great. Yeah, as I said, we're, we were supposed to be in a studio with a full setup, and instead I'm in a uh, self-constructed blanket cave in my garage. Uh, so in the spirit of sheltering in place and making it work a day at a time, we're going to do our best. I, th- I thought it was the spirit of being an entrepreneur. <laughs> Today, I'm very excited to welcome my longtime coach and good friend, Jerry Colonna. Jerry spent years as a venture capitalist, starting Flatiron Partners with Fred Wilson in 1996, before turning to coaching and eventually founding well-known coaching group Reboot, where he has coached many of the iconic entrepreneurs of our generation. Jerry and I explore leading through a crisis for which you may not feel quite ready, how to manage your own psychology, and finding freedom from the notion that leaders must have it all figured out. Quick requests for you, our listeners. Please follow and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Your positive reviews are our lifeblood. If you have any questions or topics you'd like covered on an upcoming episode, or any feedback at all, please email us at questions at thesanitypod.com. Now, on to Jerry. Jerry, thank you so much for being here today. Well, you're welcome. It's a, it's a mitzvah to be able to help somebody else do a mitzvah. And by all of those mitzvahs, and, and we have to recognize I was born in Brooklyn, so Yiddish is my second tongue. And uh, all those mitzvahs will heal the world. And that's what we need right now. It's a really um, proud moment for me. Um, because I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to steer clear of being paternalistic, Matt. Feel free. So I still think of you as a student. So, uh, it's a proud moment to have my student leaning in and, uh, using his anxieties as a superpower to help the world. So well done, sir. Thank you. I very much am still in student mode and, Mm -hmm. um, have learned that inclination, I think, uh, in part from modeling you. So thank you for that. Um, I think as I was preparing for our time together today, uh, my initial inclination was I'm going to have Jerry on and I'll interview him. And Jerry's going to have a lot of great advice for the leaders out there that are struggling through this crisis. And I think those things will be true, I have no doubt. But I had this second layer that I, I think um, has a selfish tinge to it or a self-serving tinge, but I think also might be helpful to other people out there that are resourcing leaders. And that layer was, I think, behind my own anxiety in this time was this fear of how am I going to be helpful to the leaders that I'm working with? And um, as some mm. maybe helpful and personal context for our listeners, uh, I, I think since the last time that you and I spent time together in person, I've made the transition from founder, CEO to coach, um, spent the fall Mm -hmm. leaning into that and, and found myself at the end of the year working with about a dozen CEOs, which was work that in, in one way felt natural and felt like a, um, an obvious transition from all of the ups and downs that you and I partnered on through my time at 2020. Um, but in another way was Mm -hmm. terrifying and new and um the the coaches that i had grown up under and that i had begun to model my exploratory work after were were people like you and some of the reboot folks that i really put on a pedestal and um i it took me my the first few months there to even just find confident footing of oh there might be a way that i do this work in a way that i am um a way that I do it that feels right for me. And I think began this year feeling some emergent confidence there and then got 
slammed like every as everyone else has with this corona outbreak and found myself wondering can i really do this can i be a support to these leaders that i work with and how do i begin to do that so the the second layer that i that i realize in our conversation will be deeply personal to me and i'm sure to other coaches and therapists and people that are out there supporting the leaders through this crisis is um what what guidance uh, might you give to people that are looking to be of support? And I'm, I'm super grateful to be able to get to explore that with you today. Mm. Well, um, maybe the best place to begin on that is to uh, recognize that that internal um, questioning is quite normal. And I would even argue, uh, not just for those who see themselves as a defined first responder to the world of suffering, whether it's a therapist or a coach or uh, a meditation teacher, a mindfulness instructor, uh, those of us who um, are organized, and as you know, Matt, uh, I'm a Buddhist, so I'll make a lot of references to Buddhism organized to fulfill our bodhisattva vow, our vow to alleviate suffering. Those of us who are organized to do so for the relief of existential suffering uh, are human too. And we are uh, just as subject to those feelings as anyone else. Um, and that includes the CEOs and other leaders who might be listening in on this conversation as well, because we are all in one way or another there. So maybe what would be helpful is to just hang out with you in that question for a little bit. This is where I make you cry, Matt. So just a warning. It's part of what you sign up for hanging out with Jerry. Yeah, exactly. You should see when I talk to myself, it's, it's a mess. <laughs> um, <laughs> so if we just pause for a second, and I want you to step back into the experience, the feeling of, um, can I be helpful? How would you, do, how, how would you uh, articulate the question that arises inside of you? Can I really do this is something you said. Say more about that. I think for me, it, it forces that familiar question of, um, do, I, do I really know what I'm doing? Am I really up for this? Um, am I an imposter? Am I faking my way through this? Hmm. Um, and that question is something that, you know, first as a CEO and now as a coach, I, I find myself coming in and out of my my sure-footedness on how I respond to and relate to that question. So that's an understandable response. And again, I'm going to emphasize something. It's a quite human response. I remember when uh, a colleague, someone we both know and love, first started coaching, he used to call me up after the first sessions and say, Jerry, I think I broke the client. Um, and I'd say, no, you haven't broken anybody. Okay. <laughs> so that's, that's the first thing I would note is the universality of some of that, uh, feeling. Um, but I want to bring your attention to something a little bit more robust around that. And, um, when we are worrying about that, who are we thinking about? Ourselves is what comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I want to bring your attention to that, not so that it induces guilt, because I know you, um, um, but to call attention to it. Because in that mind frame, you know, I, I, as I wrote in the book, in, the, in, in my book, I described the, the phenomena of that imposter syndrome as one of a series of beliefs that I often refer to as the crow who sits on your shoulder telling you all the things that you've done wrong. 
Um, so let's just acknowledge that it's there and acknowledge that the purpose of that belief system is to actually keep you safe mm. from humiliation, from failure, from shame, from all of those um, very, very profoundly um, uh, embodied belief systems from our childhood. And we'll just blow a kiss to that, put it to the side for a moment. And then I want to bring your attention back to what we're really called to do in this moment, which is um, related to the wish. What is the wish that you have? So, so you described a bit of your journey into the coaching seat. What is the wish that you have in that coaching seat? I think the wish for me is to be of service. The wish, there's a wish that my life and my work matter. Mm -hmm. um, there's a wish to bring partnership and healing to people that are in leadership positions that look perhaps at moments from the outside like they're thriving, but when you peel beneath the surface, there's suffering. Mm -hmm. So there's a wish for a a relief of suffering that is very personal to my own journey and to what I understood of my father's journey and the journey that I see of many, many friends around me. Mm -hmm. So um, the relief of suffering, that's the call. That is the bodhisattva's call, right? In Buddhist thinking, the Bodhisattva forestalls the opportunity to be free of samsara, the endless cycle of birth, old age, sickness, and death, the endless cycle of suffering. The Bodhisattva forestalls the opportunity to become an embodied Buddha until all beings are able to be free of suffering. So it's a Bodhisattva vow. And so there we are off to the side is the crow that's telling us we're an imposter. There's the crow that's telling us what a fucking fake we are. We don't know what the fuck we're doing. Because in moments like this, whether it's the coronavirus outbreak or the market crash or the drying up of capital funding uh, or all three simultaneously, <laughs> The impulse to, to be able to tell someone what to do is, becomes stronger and louder because we are trained to believe that um, output and fixing is the way to alleviate suffering. But to go back to an earlier statement, we are first responders to existential suffering. We are not first responders putting out a blaze in a building. Now, the first responder who's running into a building, their first job is to put the fire out, is to fix. But that's not our job. Okay? And so if we take these belief systems together and we pull them together, we realize that our first responder job, our bodhisattva job, is to alleviate suffering. Well, here's a kind of mind-blowing concept for you. When the Buddha taught the way of the Bodhisattva, he didn't make an exception for you. He didn't say that you being the one who is the first responder to suffering should suffer in that path. What he said was, what the teaching is, may all beings be relieved of suffering myself included. So when I look at that crow, I say, thanks, but you're actually just exacerbating my suffering. And in doing so, you're getting in the way of me doing my job, which is to be there wholly, fully, completely for the other person. Now, what I'm trying to do is to encourage the coaches, the therapists, the leaders, the people who are listening to this to reframe 
the work from advising and fixing to getting it back into self-soothing so that I may be able to stay present. See, the belief system that you're going to do it wrong, which is the belief behind the can I really do this question, is self-centered and takes our attention off of the work at hand. It's like there's a fire blazing in front of us and we're looking over our shoulder and saying, well, what happened to the fire over there that may exist? No, 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 come back. My friend Matt would like me to be on a show. I could spend this time talking about my book, but my friend Matt has a heavy heart. And that's what I'm called to do. That's where I'm called to be. So if we develop that awareness, I think the, the framing is very helpful. There's what's coming up for me is this curiosity, almost a stubborn curiosity of like, okay, Jerry, so what the fuck do I do next? So if, if step one is to be aware that dwelling in the imposter syndrome or dwelling in this question of like, God, I, I wish I was the coach. I wish I could be the coach today that I believe I could be in five years so that I could be a resource to these people around me the way I want to be. And I, I hear this in the, on calls with CEOs where they are saying things like, I wish this company had a leader that was ready for something like this. And what, what I hear you saying, and you can tell me if I have this right, is that dwelling in that wish for someone else or a wish for a preparedness or a self-confidence um, that isn't here today is um, the dwelling could, could be self-serving. And there's a call to moving past it and fighting the fire that's in front of us. Is that, is that right? Yeah, although I might uh, ameliorate and attenuate a little bit the uh, what the fuck. Um, here's the way to think about it, Matt. Um, human beings, in order to survive physical and existential wounding, tend to be um, internally focused and tend to presume that the world is threatening. And it kind of goes like this. There's an old Buddhist teaching about a man who spends the entire night convinced that the coil in the room, in the corner of the room, is a snake. And then, of course, he wakes up in the morning only to discover it's a rope. And um, so why do we do that? Why do we spend our entire night restless, convinced that that coil is a snake? Well, it's because it's very simple. It's better to be safe than sorry. Right? If you make the mistake the other way, you might be dead. And so in times of distress, in times of stress, those of us who step into a seat of either leadership or coaching, um, what starts to happen is we start to experience the other, capital O, their distress, right? Because that's part of what we're about. And the first thing our amygdala does is, uh-oh, threat. I do a lot of hiking here in, in Boulder, and I like watching the prairie dogs as I hike. And as you get closer and closer to a prairie dog in his little, you know, dugout foxhole, um, they, their, their yipping gets louder and louder. And what they're doing is sending a signal to everybody else. And that's kind of the way our amygdala works, right? It's like, yip, 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 uh-oh, danger, danger. And the consequence of that for the leader and for the coach is to actually abandon the client or the other in that moment and turn inward and then get self-focused. And the result of that is that the client, even if you haven't done anything different, the client or your colleague or your romantic partner starts to feel bereft, lost. And then their anxiety goes up. And then your amygdala response goes up. And all of a sudden you have what my partner Allie likes to say is you start having non-versation. 
conversation <laughs> without real connection, right? And so I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to use a different phrase than leader or coach, because uh, I think you're quite rightly mixing those two. And I'm just going to say the person who has power, the person who has agency in that moment. And so I think it's incumbent upon the person who has agency to go first, to turn inward and calm the amygdala down calm the limbic nervous system down. And we can do that by not necessarily, by using a meditation technique of not necessarily following our anxious thoughts, but by watching our thoughts. What I often think about is like that one eye turned inward, paying attention to how I'm doing, and the other eye and both ears tuned outward to the other. And as we're watching that inward experience, we're holding ourselves present. And in that moment, we start to speak and we stay connected through emotional and physiological and neurological rapport. And then the other's prairie dog brain calms down. And then you get to go back and focus on the task at hand, mm-hmm. whether it's a work assignment or, you know, your child needing to get homework. Because, by the way, this, this is very much a parenting experience. Right. Something that's coming up for me is uh, a recollection that you and I met and started working together maybe six, six or seven years ago as client and coach during a time for me where I was waking up to this realization that the way that I've been operating and leading is not going to work anymore. And one thing you taught me is that that's a a point of awareness and transition that many leaders need to reach and go through. And it's occurring to me that a crisis like this may be that time for many people. I'm certainly running into founders who are waking up today and realizing the way that they've been operating themselves and the way that they've been operating with the team is not feeling functional in this time. And I'm curious for people that might be facing that realization for the first time and listening to this, um, if you would have, I don't know, like level one guidance for what it's, how one begins to step into a time of awareness and change like that? Sure. Well, let's, let's take one step backwards and say, you know, because I think your self-aware statement was really spot on, which was essentially, to quote Marshall Goldsmith, a great coach, what got you here won't get you there. And so there was a moment, perhaps at the beginning of our coaching relationship, where you realized that what had gotten you there won't, won't get you further, to, to alter the phrase. Right. And typically what got you there was brute force, a kind of white knuckling, doubling down, pushing, pushing, pushing. And that uh, mindset stems from the false, mistaken belief that a leader's job is to tell everybody what to do. Hmm. And it's false because implicit behind that is the belief that the leader's job is to know what to think (laughs) all the time. And, and perhaps to, uh, to be the pack dog, right? The one setting the pace for the team. That, 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 that's right. That's right. And, 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 the, and what, what we confuse a lot of time, and you know, we get that sensation because we look at a calm leader and we think they're calm because they know what to do. And that's false. They're calm because they know it's okay not to know what to do. And they know that their job is to stay present. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so that's, the setup. And then the white knuckling stops working. And you're right, we're in one of those moments where the white knuckling brute force style no longer works. And we have two responses. We typically double down and white knuckle even more. (laughs) That's the normal response. The alternate response is to actually do something that's completely counterintuitive, which is to relax the grip. Mm. 
right? And in relaxing the grip, we run the risk of the whole fucking thing falling apart. And so we get terrified. But here's the truth. The whole fucking thing can fall apart anyway, whether you relax the grip or not. That's an right. implicit lesson of a time like this. And so what we want to do is self-soothe and self-manage the anxiety that comes up so that the prairie dog part of our brain calms down so that we create the conditions where the smartest person in the room can offer a piece of advice about what the team should do. Or in the case of the coach client, so that the client who is inherently um, wisest as it comes to their own life can arrive at an answer on their own without subtly undermining their own sense of their own self by relying upon someone else to tell them what to do. And how does one even begin to do that if? They're not talking to a Jerry or they're not an experienced meditator or someone that's accustomed to maybe any practices that help with that easing of the grip. How, how, do, how does one even start? CBD. No, <laughs> <sure>. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so um, uh, let me talk about a longer-term approach to that, and then I'll talk about a shorter-term that. The longer term approach to that, and uh, you know, you've been you've been subjected to my quote unquote teachings for a long for a long time, so this is going to feel familiar. The longer term practice is to use those moments of wishing to double down and white knuckle even further as a moment of practice and as a moment of growth yourself. When I implore people to use leadership and the challenges of leadership to finally grow up and be the adult that they were born to be, the subtitle of my massive book, which you're going to buy for $29.95, I'm teasing. What's your um, link? <laughs> when I implore people to grow up, this is what I'm really talking about. I'm talking about using these moments on a continuous basis to bump up against the parts of ourselves that are wired to double down on paths that do not work. That's the long-term practice. The shorter-term practice is, and I'm going to quote John O'Donoghue's blessing for one who is exhausted, um, steer clear of those who are vexed. Learn to, take to, to be with someone who is of ease. Um, and what he's basically saying is, watch who you're hanging out with. Um, sure, find a great minister, therapist, coach, elder. Um, you know, one of our mutual friends, Matt, is Jim Marsden, who, in my mind, every time I use the word elder, comes up. And that's because Jim, thankfully, is a year or two older than me. So <laughs> I knew that. Back with you. But, um, but the, the truth is, um, we are oftentimes surrounded by elders. Uh, uh, it goes without saying that Jim would implore us to, re to consider the non-other-than-human beings as also elders, as sources of ease. Um, and the more we practice that, even in a short-term short basis, the more we can learn to sit still. One of the things that I have been uh, sharing with folks in this time of distress is a teaching from Ani Pema Chodron, my Buddhist teacher, who in her book, Comfortable with Uncertainty, likens our experience of being human to the weather and how the weather is always changing. And um, that our suffering stems from the fact that we wake up and we say, I would like it to be sunny for the next three days. And then we get upset when a cloud passes by. And what she advises is to remember that we're fluid, not solid, and that we are just like the weather, constantly changing. And that when a storm arrives, 
the metaphor she asks us to hold on to is to sit like a mountain in the midst of a hurricane. And that's fucking hard. Especially when the hurricane is taking lives left and right. You know, when we first set up for our conversation, you know, I'll, I'll give him a data point that will date us. There were 17,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus in the United States. Today, there are 83,000. That was seven days ago. That is a fucking storm. And so the question is, can we as coaches, leaders, parents, friends, lovers, colleagues, employees, siblings, children, learn to sit like a mountain in the midst of a hurricane? Today's episode is brought to you by Pluto Pillows. In all of life's little ups and downs, sleep is perhaps your most important ally. Pluto provides a personalized pillow directly to your door. The only irony for me here is that I loved my Pluto pillow until my wife stole it, but now she loves it. Personalized for me, but no longer mine. Still a win for the family. Check out PlutoPillow.com. All orders receive free shipping and a 100-night guarantee. Now, back to Jerry. I wonder if we might normalize some of the experience that leaders are having that might be listening to this. And I know that one of the beautiful gifts of being a coach is that you are having an experience of of seeing many leaders in differing situations um, who are experiencing this crisis in, in their individual companies and families and lives. And there's a normalizing effect to that, that many people who are feeling alone in this don't have. Um, I, I wonder what you might be willing and able to share about what you're seeing leaders experience and what guidance you're sharing with them to help them through that so that those who are experiencing this from a place of isolation might have some other data points. Uh, sure. And I think um, <clears throat> you named both the... Um one of the problems and one of the solutions in the same breath. And the isolation exacerbates all of the emotional swings. Um, I'm fond of, of thinking of our lives, not necessarily as the weather, as Pema Chodron says, but as a roller coaster. And um, the advice that I often give is to um, stand back and appreciate the roller coaster, but don't board the roller coaster. And one of the things that you've, you've just identified with your question and your observation is that when we realize that we've all got our own versions of the roller coaster, it's a little bit easier to stand, to stand back from the roller coaster. The second thing that I've been saying a lot lately is, um, you know, a few weeks ago, I was on a podcast and the host used the phrase, uh, I know, I know, I'm powerless to stop things. I think she was trying to mimic some of the language from, say, a 12-step program. And I cut her off and I said, you're not powerless. I don't think you should hold that line of thinking, no matter how helpless you feel. What is true is that there are many, many things over which you have no control. But that doesn't mean you're powerless. And here again, language matters because not only are we speaking to each other, we're speaking to our own amygdalas. Mm. And one of the most important things to remember is that we have power over our own experience. I once had a, a teacher say to me, um, said in class, the only thing that we do not have power over is our need to breathe. And it's important to remember that we cannot affect 99% of the world. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's true. But that doesn't mean I'm powerless. It just means that there are things that are beyond our control. And it's really important in times of distress 
to pull forth our adult brain and our adult capacity to discern. Now, I'm going to use that word because it's really important. Discernment, to go back to that earlier metaphor, would tell the man who can't sleep because of the coil in the room, turn on the fucking light. Right? You don't have to lay there in terror. Check it out. Discernment is the capacity to separate true risk from false risk. Because again, we are wired to see false positives. That keeps us safe. In Buddhism, one of my favorite saints is uh, named Manchuri. And Manchuri is the Buddha of infinite wisdom. He's often depicted in schools and that sort of thing. And Manchuri is always depicted wielding a sword, a flaming sword. It's called the Sword of Prajna. And that's a way to visualize uh, discernment. It's a flaming sword that cuts through bullshit. It cuts through our addictive qualities. It cuts through our negative thinking. It cuts through our capacity to blame ourselves, to feel guilt instead of remorse. And now more than ever, times like this require discernment. You know, if we look at the flailing that we're experiencing from the federal government, and it's just, a, it's just outrageous, I look at that and I see a lack of discernment. I see a loss of the capacity to think and act clearly. And when leaders panic, the first thing that goes is discernment. The good news is that you don't ever lose the discernment. And what's the path back for, for those times when you're just operating fully out of the amygdala and fully out, offline and feeling that gripping panic or depression or anxiety, that overwhelmingness that I think many of us are feeling on a daily basis right now. Um, where, where do you find that sword? How, what's the path back? Right. So um, one of the most important things, and this is the longer term, this is why we practice. Hmm. This is what practice is all about. Uh, my good friend, the Buddhist teacher, Vince Horn, tweeted out a few weeks ago a reminder. This is why you've been sitting on the cushion for all those years. <laughs> because what you have ready is the ability to, to practice. So those of us who have carefully worked with the interior landscape are fortunate right now. Because we have the tools of discernment that we can sort of settle down and say what's true, what's not true. Think about how powerful that question is. And the onslaught of information that we're deluged with right now, and that we actually actively, our minds, our anxious mind, actively seeks out. You know, oh my God, if I swallow bleach, will that help me? No, don't swallow bleach, you'll die. Right? That's discernment. And so the ability to reach back in, whether it's a tool of walking, a tool of sitting practice, a tool of yoga, a tool of journaling, a tool of deep, meaningful conversation. To have dialogue with the inner landscape creates the capacity to respond in times of existential suffering. Every single wisdom tradition teaches that. Whether it's contemplative prayer, whether it's... it's, it's uh, you know, the desert fathers really being able to be in relationship with the soul. So that's thing one. But you've got another question, which is, great. So what if we haven't been sitting on the meditation cushion for 17 years? What if we don't have the capacity to actually close our eyes, roll our eyes in the back of our head and say, what the heck is true here? Hmm. 
What a great day to practice. What a great day to start. What a great place to start. One of my other Buddhist teachers, Trimpa Rinpoche, used to say, uh, chaos should be welcomed. Chaos should be welcomed. Because as you pointed out before, it's a moment of wakefulness. And he used to add, may you be bombarded by coconuts of wakefulness. Wake up. All things are falling apart all the time. All things are impermanent. The major source of suffering is the wish for that not to be true. Now, this being so, what are you going to do about that? To me, the only answer is love and compassion. Because we cannot prevent the world from falling apart. We can only pretend that it's not falling apart all the time. And sometimes we can no longer pretend. And that's a moment of wakefulness. And the appropriate response is to empathetically connect and reinforce community. This is who we are. This is our species. This is what millennia have, of evolution have created. I have you. You have me. We together have Holden and Marco. You know, this afternoon, one of my colleagues has a four-year-old son. I'll be reading to him via Zoom from Thomas the Tank Engine. That's beautiful. That, to me, is the appropriate leader's response to distress. Also, around the time that you and I met, um, as a leader, I found myself in this place where I had been wearing a mask in front of the team and felt a lot of insecurity with letting the people that I was leading really know me. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm, I, I'm reminded of that often now when I spend time with CEOs and leaders who maybe, as you're describing, um, hitting a point of opportunity for themselves where they're waking up to realizing that what got them here is not going to bring them forward. Mm -hmm. And maybe sitting on the cushion for the first time or beginning that um, inward search and um, inward processing for the first time. Mm. What I'm curious um, what, what you would say to leaders who find themselves dealing with that personally for the first time and then are getting on Zoom calls or attending all hands with teams who, who know them only in the old way. So how does one begin to open up in any way um, if they've been operating as a leader in the old way for so long? Lately, I've taken to being marginally uncomfortable with the word vulnerable, mm -hmm. because for no matter how much work people do, um, people still associate it with weak. And so I preferred using the word real. And so the answer to your question is, um, and your, to reform your, your question, it was, well, Jerry, what you're suggesting is that a leader might show up in a different way. And how do they show up in that different way? How do they, they work with the team when they decide to start showing up in a different way? Well, how about this? Be real. Meaning, walk in and say, hey, I know I've been this way. And it's kind of been useful to be that way. And I'm excited that I was able to be that way. But it's occurring to me that being that way no longer works. And in fact, the more anxiety I feel, the more uncertainty that we encounter, the more my impulse is to, to pretend that that way was working. And so I'm going to show up in a different way. And I'm a little scared because I worry that I might um, uh, 
frighten you. And part of what I carry is that my responsibility as a leader is not only to have all the answers, but to make sure that your internal emotional state is all okay. Despite the fact that I know I'm not capable of making that happen, I still feel responsible for that. The point here and what I'm trying to model is how can one show up as real without in, uh, asking, unconsciously asking the team to be responsible for my anxiety? And it's a subtle space, I know, because typically when I say to somebody, we'll tell them the truth, they'll say, I'm panicked. No, that's not what I'm asking, right? I'm not suggesting that you walk in and you hand the baton of your emotional overwhelm to somebody else and say, please carry this to the finish line for me. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's a power in being able to say, this is what's going on and I'm going to attempt to be different. And then the other people's limbic nervous systems get to go, oh, we're going to see things that are different. Okay, that's not threatening. I've been warned. So it sounds like it, it might start with using our own sort of discernment or tapping into our own practices to settle our own minds. Not to say that all worry or concern is going to be removed, but to say that we're showing up from a place of groundedness before we are sharing those concerns in a, in, from a place of openness with a team. Is that right? That's right. That's right. That's right. Beautiful. I'm curious as we approach the end of our time, um, how as someone who coaches leaders, you think about what's going on at the macro level with our government, our leaders, other world leaders, um, how you think about that and maybe even what advice you would offer them if you were coaches to them. To the world leaders? Mm-hmm. Um, and please, can that happen soon? Let me call the pharmacologists, because I think that they need some... Uh, um, I'll make an observation about it. Um, I want to make a distinction between Donald Trump's daily press conferences now and Andrew Cuomo's. And I want to acknowledge that Andrew is a very, very complicated man. And also, as a disclaimer, um, while we haven't spoken in years, um, he was a very close friend of mine um, before he was governor. So I, I have insight into his personality, and I adore him, even though he's a pain in the butt. Um, I think if you watch both leaders. What you see is um, one leader who, uh, and Trump, you see someone who uh, can barely contain his panic. Um, and what he's trying to use is um, uh, the kind of bluster that has actually served him really well in his life to uh, uh, to kind of create a reality that would be a much better reality for him. No, the states don't need, won't need ventilators, for example. Maybe the, maybe the economy will open by Easter. And what you see with Andrew is someone who is just sort of leaning into the, this being so. And, you know, a lot of times he lets his emotions fly, which is part of Andrew's temperament, but he's real. And um, in this moment, I trust him more than I would trust Donald Trump. And I think that there's a lesson for all leaders in the comparison between the two. And again, I am not holding one or the other on a pedestal or tearing one down. 
but we're looking at our experience of being led by someone who is actually self-soothing and self-managing and reaching deep inside to find the resources to say what needs to be said. And the other reaching deep down inside and saying what they wish was true. Hmm. And um, I think one of the most important things to take away from this period, because there will, this period will end, is that you know everybody talks about how the world will be different. Well, one way I hope that the world is different is that uh, we forever put a stake in the heart of the myth of the strong man leader. That is not what the world needs. The brittle know-it-all who somehow by force of will, brute force of will, somehow makes it all better. Those of us who project our wishes onto that person need to grow up ourselves and realize there's no one coming to the rescue. There is no white knight. Or more specifically, the white knight, the rescuer, is the collective us. And that is both scary and empowering. And if you are fully actualized as an adult, you will feel the empowerment of that. So that would be my advice and counsel to world leaders is grow up, sit in your seat like a warrior, and hold space for the community to step up and heal the world. And if they want to talk to me, they know how to reach me. <laughs> and the book's on Amazon. <laughs> and the book's on Amazon, exactly. <laughs> Jerry, I, I just want to say thank you again. I have a huge smile on my face um, with what you've described as the collective responsibility here. And mm -hmm. I feel a sense of ease having spent this time with you. And I'm excited for others to get to experience this time as well. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Well, thank you, my young Padawan. I'm proud of you. Um, the force is strong within you. And uh, these are all Yoda jokes. So um, I really appreciate your leaning in and helping in the, in the way you are. And I see you. Thank you so much. That's today's episode. Reminder to please follow and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Your positive reviews really are our lifeblood. Lastly, if you have any questions or topics you'd like covered in an upcoming episode or any feedback at all, please email us at questions at thesanitypod.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening. We're so glad you did.